Guys, this is Succession. This is HBO. If you don't want to hear me talking about Logan Roy, talking about then don't listen to this. There are bad language words in this show. Hello, and welcome to the Eat the Mozzarella episode of Sleep Money Succession. I am Felix Hammond of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck of Fundrise. Hello, hello. And, oh my God, this is the best episode yet. I think we can all agree of Succession Season 3. And we are in for a particular treat because this week we are joined by Rachel Syme. Rachel, welcome. Thank you for having me. Buongiorno. Rachel, um, introduce yourself. Who are you? And you, you have written about this show. Yes, I'm a writer at The New Yorker, and um, I have written about Succession a lot. I wrote a lot about fashion in the show. Um, I've talked to the costume designer a bunch and sort of microanalyzed a lot of the clothes. And then just recently, I went out for a very lush night of martinis with Jay Smith Cameron, who plays Jerry on the show. And we had a great chat about all things Jerry, which I encourage people to check out because she is a delight. She is awesome. We had her on the show last season. It was awesome having her. And just remember pre-pandemic when we could she have people in cake. the studio? She brought us a cake. Do you remember? Uh, she, she's the cake. best. She's just the best. <laughs> Delightful. So we are going to talk about Jerry's fashion choices on this show and Shiv's and even Lucas Madsen's. We're going to talk about all manner of dynamics. We're going to talk about Shiv and her mother, Roman and his mother, Roman and Jerry, Roman and Logan, Logan and Kendall, Shiv and Tom, oh my god, Connor and Willa, you know, you name it, it all comes to a head in this episode, we're gonna tear it all apart and give you all of our favorite lines coming up on Slate Money Succession. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Oh, my God, this episode. Oh, my God, this episode. Oh, my God. 
Oh, oh my, my God, God, this episode. Ah. <laughs> this is this is like where shit starts getting fully real and this is this is just like oh my god this episode of course we have to stay say from the top was written by jesse armstrong and i want him to write all of the episodes because oh my god the writing was amazing that everything stuff came to a head now we're like now we know what we were waiting for yes i think this episode had also like five of the all-time great lines in succession banger after banger after <laughs> banger in this episode it was all killer no filler it was so dark, yet I laughed so many times. It was that perfect blend of darkness and humor that we we want from succession and need. But it was so dark. I mean, this was the the episode where it was clear just how terrible these parents are. I mean, my God, I should have had dogs. You're my onion. Oh, brutal. Brutal. They really don't like each other. One thing, there um, there was a piece in Slate a, a few weeks ago, and I even was on the waves to talk about Shiv this season in particular, and the criticism early on was that like we're just not getting enough of who she is inside, and she's coming across too wooden, and she's not as fully realized as, uh, the, uh, as the boys. Um, but this is the episode that totally throws that out the window, I thought. I mean, from the top, seeing her dis- just all disheveled and depressed in bed um, to her getting just absolutely torn down by her mother, yet that pumps her up. To tear down Tom, yeah. Yes. Oh, I mean, it, it was such a great portrayal. It's It's like that Philip Larkin poem, isn't it? You know, you get fucked up by your parents and then you fuck up, I guess, your husband if you don't have any kids. Yeah, and I mean, I think this was Shiv's episode. You're right, from top to tail. It's like, it's it's even at the very end, everything she's doing to sort of manipulate the Roman dick pic situation, which we can get into later. But I think, you know, <laughs> that last conversation with Jerry where she's like, I just want you to report this to HR for your benefit when it's so clear she's just trying to do a work. It's also so clumsy. It's gross. Like, Shiv's having such an episode of full, I, I'm she's all over the place. She doesn't end this episode, like, on a super high point. Like, in in terms of the arc of the season so far, Kendall started low and just kept on getting lower and lower and has now reached the point at the end of this episode that he is, you know, almost drowned. Catatonic suicidal. We don't even know if he's going to be alive in the next episode, but probably. Um, The, you know, Roman had this insane upward arc over the course of the season where he's become closer and closer to logan he's been doing the deals he's been involved in negotiating stuff he's been you know there was a line in the last episode where he talked about like staying up all night putting a deal pitch together he's professional he started wearing ties this is the episode where like he makes the terrible terrible error um but even at the end of this episode i'm gonna come out and say that he is still higher up the pecking order than Siobhan. She hasn't quite scrabbled her way back yet. And certainly Shiv is even higher than Kendall. Although, I don't know. I mean, we can get to this at the end, but I actually think this is an opening for Kendall, weirdly, this dick pic thing. You think the dick pic is an opening for Kendall? There's no way. Kendall has no openings. Kendall is like, he has no way out. I don't know. I honestly think that the dick pic situation made Logan see that the kids he's chosen to have closest to him are also deeply deep liabilities 
I think he's kind of not sure who's he. I think he realizes all are incompetent, honestly, maybe equally at this point. I think he has really chosen his successor at this point. And that was the meeting with Roman where he basically came out and said that his chosen successor is Lucas Madsen, the guy who he's going to give half of the company to and who is clearly extremely competent and knows how to grow a company and run a big company and be successful. And when Roman just assumes, well, we're not going to give this guy half of the merged company, everyone else goes, well, it might make sense. And Logan kind of goes, yeah, kind of makes sense. Yeah, I mean, all he wants to know, I think he said, to, yeah, he said to, what do you say? He says, this guy isn't a fuckhead to, to Roman. And he goes, no. And he goes, like, I can, what do you say? He said, I can win any bout with a boxer fuck, but I don't know how to knock out a clown. And I love that line. He's basically saying, like, this guy's a player. Like, he will be good. He, I just want to know, is he solid? I don't care about his Twitter antics, which, you know, is very, like, Elon Musk adjacent or something. It's like going to Macau, feeling lucky, like tweeting weird emojis. He's basically like, is that a work? Is it going to take us down? No. Great. Half the company can be disguised because obviously he sees that they're going to be a dinosaur irrelevant company in 10 years if they don't pick up a streamer. That seemed a little out of nowhere to me. Let, let's talk a little bit about Lucas's Twitter antics because um, what became abundantly clear, and it's worth spelling this out probably, over the course of the episode, is that they were entirely tactical, right? In contrast to, say, Elon or Donald Trump, who are just tweeting out their id and will say whatever they like on Twitter, the Lucas Madsen tweets were very much designed to raise the share price so as to force Logan to pay so much for Matson's company that it would be a merger of equals. And just to spell out what was implicit, the way that he was raising the share price was by saying that he was flying to Macau because that was how he was going to get into gaming. And this is a very of-the-minute plot, you know, subplot, basically, that media companies trying to get into the gambling industry, like it's happening in the United States right now. And it's still early days, but it's clearly something everyone wants to do. Well, especially like esports and Asia, the Asian gaming market. I mean, that's kind of what what Roman says at the end. He has nine of the big Asian gaming conglomerates wrapped up into Gojo. This will be huge. I mean, sports betting, we're supposed to believe he's kind of a visionary. And the lines are like when at the beginning of this season, we had Kendall just talking utter bollocks about strategy and vision and stuff. And everyone just laughed at him because he had no idea what he was talking about. And then in this episode, we can see what people mean when they're actually being competent. When Matson just talks about analysis plus capital plus execution. And you're like, oh, OK, yeah, he kind of gets it. And Roman, of all people... You know, as he, as you say, Rachel, he just lists it off. He goes, the future is movies, TVs, music, games, sports, AR, VR, everything for everyone. And Matson knows how to get there. Like, that is simple, easy to understand, and probably true. Yeah. And Roman, it, that was, I mean, that was his high point. The reason he sent his father a dick pic was because his father texted him, good job, kid, which... I cannot recall the last time Logan has said something that nice to any of those children. Good job, kid, is like the pinnacle. Clearly, Roman's done his best work ever. And then, 
immediately fucks it up is just, it's very classic. What interests you and Jerry, exactly? Jesus, Dad, I'm fucking, I'm screwing around. I don't like things going on I don't know about. She's a million years old. It's fucking disgusting. You're a laughing stock. I'll go. I'll go on. Fuck off. And I mean, I think the clear loser is Jerry, which is just so right. It's so correct, you know? <laughs> like, Jerry has been set up to fail this whole season. It's so right in its wrongness. Like, Shiv's going to use this as an opening to say, you you are the CEO. You, you can't be sexually harassed. I mean, she is the CEO, and she's going to be somehow taken down by this <laughs> really, it is sexual harassment. The thing on that absolutely part. angers me that really gets my goat every time I watch Shiv try to be a feminist because it's so she does. She's the worst at it. She whenever she's like talks to a woman, woman to woman, it's like an absolute failure. And you can see that that comes from her mother and her inability to connect with other women or really other people in general. I think Shiv has very little wells of empathy. But uh, um, this idea of like taking Jerry aside and being like, let's just have a girl's chat about if you feel comfortable. It's like this is not about Jerry's comfort level. And I like that Jerry's just being like, that's for me to decide. We'll deal with this later. And I also think what's interesting is this entire episode is leading up to this moment in that from the very first moment, Jerry's asking Roman to stop sending the dick pics. I mean, she says, can you please stop with the items? It's making me uncomfortable. And not even in a harassed way. She's just like, this is going to be bad. I just know it. Something is going to go down with this that is bad. It's like she she's trying to protect Roman from himself. Just like, I'm not interested. This isn't the thing. This isn't the sexy thing you think it is. It's just kind of pathetic and weird. And it's making me feel gross. And, you know, then she asks him again when after he's been dispatched to go talk to Madison and she's and he's like, I'm going to fuck your boyfriend and I'm going to fuck you and I'm going to save the company. And she's like, "Ugh, Roman, like, just do one thing. Right. So this has all been leading up to this moment. And it's like, I think I feel so sad for Jerry because it's like almost like I feel sad for Roman. I know she feels sad for Roman, like Roman fucked himself over here. And she was trying to stop this train from barreling down the tracks and it crashed anyway. Rachel, I really want to ask you, as the expert on all things sartorial in succession, can you talk a little bit about the clothes that Shiv and Jerry are wearing in that particular scene? The big showdown between Shiv and Jerry. Shiv is we- Shiv is kind of cosplaying a, a media exec in this sort of slightly boxy chalk stripe suit. Yeah, she's been wearing the same suits all season, which is a matching pants jacket with a white T-shirt. This is sort of Shiv's corporate look. Yeah. And meanwhile, Jerry has put on her full-on, like, war paint. She has bright red lipstick on, and she has this kind of dark-suited, like, CEO jacket. It's a maroon dress. Yeah, and she's wearing a sort of gold collar necklace matching gold earrings, and she's wearing her glasses. Tell, Tell me about the what we learn about the what what those clothes say about the power dynamics there well i think jerry is an old school type woman in business who has come up through 
sort of being in the boys club and being one of the guys, but also kind of using her sexuality and using sort of her womanliness. And I think she would dress in a, you know, for her putting on a nice dress is what you wear to meet the bankers. It's this kind of, it's a little matronly, but it's also a little, um, you know, it's a form fitting dress. I imagine it's, it's maybe like a Roland Murray dress or something along the lines of that, maybe a Diane von Furstenberg, just like a nice sort of beautiful crepe, and Shiv is in this sort of pinstripe. I mean, it honestly looks like a guys and dolls, like Nathan Detroit outfit to me. Very like, you know, n- sort of huge navy pinstripe outfit, which to me, like you said, really re- sort of reeks of cosplay to me. Like she just doesn't know what she's doing in that room. She hasn't known. She barely made the board. She didn't even make the board meeting at the beginning of the episode. I think, you know, to talk about Shiv's clothes this entire episode, I'm sure that people are going to like hone in on this va-va-voom turquoise uh, dress that she's wearing for probably three quarters of the episode in Tuscany. That's, I mean, I, Sarah Snook's body is banging. I, there's no other way to say it. And this dress is one of the great form fitting dresses that she's been able to wear all season. And I think that's like, in certain ways, it's like, she doesn't look totally comfortable in that. She doesn't look totally comfortable in the boardroom attire. I feel like Shiv looks really out of her skin, her clothes. Jerry looks more comfortable. And I mean, even in, even in that dress, it's like, this is Jerry's, like you said, war paint, her power outfit. And when she's having that conversation with the Shiv, it's like, Jerry's an operator too. Like she's going to get fucked. No doubt about it. Although again, like Roman said, it would be an HR nightmare to fire her. He's like, I don't consider myself a feminist, but we probably shouldn't fire the woman to whom I sent dick pics right away. But I think she's, she is going to get screwed over in some way. And I think she's girding herself for that, but she's not going to give Shiv anything. Like I felt like she was really, she was really tactical in that conversation with Shiv. I love that conversation so much because Shiv obviously does not care about the actual issue at hand. She just sees sees um, a way in to like worm her way in and push Roman out. So that's what she's doing. Jerry knows that too, but they don't have that conversation. They have this like completely fake corporate conversation. And I don't know about you guys, but I've definitely had those conversations and it was just so perfect. You know, where someone comes to you and says, what happened with this thing? And you say, I just, I I don't remember. Just so wonderful. Like you're having a total subtextual conversation with someone and doing like the phony corporate talking. When Shiv says, this must be so hard for you. Oh yeah. Oh my God. I was like, (laughs) it's another one of those Shiv talks to women thing. This must be so hard for you. Like, have you ever talked to a person? Let's talk about this uh, tomorrow. Okay. Uh, I just need to check in with some people. Okay. Well, sure. I mean, it's not as if you're welcoming these items. Where are you, Jerry? Shit. It's just something for your well-being we need to get really clear about because, you know, with all this potential upheaval and you being in such a delicate position as interim CEO, if you can't deal with your own sexual harassment, then it's not a good look. I can cope. Okay. So do you want to make a formal complaint against him regarding this? Well, that's for me to decide. Mm-hmm. I just think, Jerry, that you should report him to HR, because if you don't, it could be argued that you welcomed these photos, and that just undermines your position. It's just, that's my concern for you here. I wonder if we shouldn't just kick this all the way up to the board. Well, thank you for giving us so much thought, and uh, I'll think it over, okay? So I'll see you back inside. Mm-hmm. Let me know. She's threatening her. Like, when, when she says you, you're in a delicate position as interim CEO... 
that's a threat. That's a full on. You need to walk the walk and like do what we tell you to do because you're already on the chopping block and you're going to get pushed out one way or another. Jerry knows that. I wonder if there's something like uniquely like corporate female about that kind of conversation, like where like a, a Logan would just, you know, is just like, you're disgusting, fuck off, whatever his usual shtick. But the women have to do it all like in this like mean girl. Sorry, I don't know if that's a cliche, but they do. They do in this kind of like mean girl way where you don't say what you actually mean, but it's completely clear what you actually mean. Do you know what I mean? I don't think the men of succession would operate the way those two did in that conversation. You're absolutely right. Although Shiv doesn't talk to men that, right? Like when when Shiv was talking to the Nazi TV host and just like telling him to get with the program and, and start briefing against the president, like she wasn't speaking in code right she just came out and said like you're gonna do what we say and he's like i could embarrass you and she's like we don't get embarrassed she code switching <laughs> she code switches yeah she did the same thing with with hope davis you know sandy jr she did the same thing when she was like i hate that you have to like count out to your father like maybe you should get a share like this weird like girl to girl like what if we both sat on the board wouldn't that be girl power and and you know it's like it's so transparent to me Whereas if you look at the way that Roman communicates with with, Ma- with Lucas Madsen, you know, in the villa on Lake Como, um, which, by the way, can we, like, I need to say this, it's a little bit of a nitpick, but they're like, he's flying back to Switzerland. No, he's not flying back to Switzerland. He's flying back to Italy. Lake Como is in Italy. It's not in Switzerland. It's next to Switzerland. It's not in Switzerland. Anyway, what Roman does is he takes, the, he takes a helicopter from Tuscany to um, just, like, northeast of Milan, where Lake Como is. And then he takes the boat to Madsen's house, where he meets Madsen. Um, They have this very awkward conversation where Madsen tries to talk to him about being lonely or whatever. And and Roman's like, fuck off, I'm not here to like, you know, share feelings. But they communicate effectively. And really quite quickly, and everyone, and like, it's clear what Matson is saying, and it's clear what Roman is saying, and then Roman brings the message back, and everything is done in a kind of relatively simple and professional and clear-cut way, which doesn't need to be buried in layers of, you know, subtweet. Maybe. I mean, I also just think Roman and Madsen understand each other. They're both, like, deeply antisocial, rich weirdos. I think they're just kindred spirits in this way. I think that's why their corporate talk was so quick because, you know, when Roman said, I'm not going to reveal any of my weaknesses to you. And then Madsen says, well, that's good because I ream people. I juice them like oranges. Like that's, you know, that he sees a bit of his dad in that. He sees a bit of himself. I mean, like Madsen's strange thing where he's like, yeah, my house is absolutely perfect, but I hate it because it's not like it's like 1% off of being perfect. And like, I think Roman can understand some sort of psychopathy that rich people get into and they're kind of in the same headspace, even though it's expressed very differently. I mean, Madsen seems to be kind of a loner, recluse, strange man. And Roman's this similar, but a little bit more sexually deviant. But I think, yeah, they speak the same language. I don't think Shiv is able to speak that language with men or women. <laughs> yeah, I don't think she has the vocabulary to really be in the game. And I think that's why she's sitting depressed in bed at the beginning of this episode, because I think she knows it. And the only person that she can dominate willfully and at any turn is her husband. And that is an incredibly depressing. Yeah, we, we will we will get to that for sure because she's she's like Tom is the dog that 
Shiv kicks and who always comes back. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people threatening me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's rebel billionaire on the slow newscast wherever you get your podcasts. I feel like Lucas Madsen is wearing the clothes that he feels comfortable in. And uh, Kendall, when he, again, is like cosplaying as a dot-com CEO, is what he does is he tries to pick out the kind of clothes that someone like Lucas would pick out, and he never quite succeeds. Sure. I mean, obviously, one of the silliest and oft cited Kendall fashion moments is in this season, first season, when he's buying those expensive land van sneakers to go meet the art girls. And he's changing in the cab and being like, these are what the cool guys wear to be a CEO. And he comes in and he's a total doofus and blows that meeting. And they say his shoes suck as well. Yeah, I think he has that dream of being somebody like Lucas Manson, who I mean, obviously, Alexander Sarsgaard, one of the most attractive people on the planet, doesn't have to do a lot to look great. But he's wearing, you know, fine merino wool sweaters, very simple, very, you know, tight sort of chinos, like, basic stuff it's like it's like the kind of thing that all tech guys wear it's like their outfit cost four grand but it kind of looks like it came from bonobos you know it's this sort of (laughs) it's a sort of like very very fancy basics um minimalism sort of all burbs thing um and i think that's kind of where Lucas Madsen is, and I think Kendall wants to look like that, but I think he also wants to be an eccentric or can't get rid of his eccentricity and doesn't really know how to dress himself. I mean, all of the Roy kids expressed sartorially are both um, extremely tasteful in that they have a lot of money, so they're buying nice the nicest things, but they're also a little feckless. Like, I never think they look quite right in their clothes, and this is something that is sort of I've been obsessed with over the seasons because I think there's something that looks off always, a little bit ill-fitting, a little bit try-hard and a little wrong. Like, I think Roman's, like, not putting his belt in the right place on his waist. It's always, like, schlumpy a little bit. Oh, my God, Roman's belt. Roman should know that you don't wear a belt with a suit. Come on, Roman, you know this shit. Stop wearing belts. But although I have to say that compared to... Tom, who, you know, when he's in the office there and he's wearing that terrible striped shirt and everyone, and it's just like, no, you're you're not, you're, you're just in a completely different, completely lower. Yeah, I mean, I actually think Tom has style, strangely, um, when he's just being himself. Like, I think Tom looks the best of anyone in this episode in his little sort of crisp white poplin shirt. I mean, Tom, Tom to me is the ultimate, I mean sort of, as many people have cited, Nick Carraway figure in that he's this Midwestern guy who's come and been corrupted by the the filthy rich from the East and who don't have any taste. And he's better than the whole lot of them put together. Although, of course, he's been so corrupted by them now that nobody's going to say Tom's a good person. But I think, you know, to me, 
Tom is looking, Tom is looking himself here. I mean, uh, even Greg is leveled up in his style. I mean, maybe Comfrey's helping, but <laughs> you think Comfrey is giving Greg some some style tips? I mean, Beyond maybe, the watch, maybe not the watch when he's flopping the watch in front of the contest. <laughs> oh look, my watch! Oh, what time is it? Oh, my fancy forty grand watch. Greg, I mean, Greg has like three lines this episode, but yet again, they're my favorite lines. Like when he's like, she's like, I'm a brand ambassador for a yogurt, and he's like, Oh, a gut cleansing treat. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> I would listen to it's Nicholas Brown say yogurt. any line. Yeah, fermented yogurt drink. Mom gets the best lines, really. Why doesn't she want a prenup? You would think of all the characters. I, well, she didn't Caroline say that she want didn't prenup. want a prenup. She was giving she was giving Roman grief. Roman was like, "Do you have a prenup?" And she, even if she did have a prenup, she would never tell him. No, she said, "Don't be so unromantic." But she was. I think she was trying. Obviously, she's protecting her interests. And then she admits to Shiv that she has actually talked to her lawyer, and that and that you know. Peter Munyon wants the place in Eaton Place, which again, like if you're not English, you might not understand some of Please translate. some of the um, the class um, stuff that that was going on in that conversation. Oh my gosh! The, the 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 can we talk about when she was talking to Roman and he calls Peter another one of her post dad posh English phonies? My favorite. He's not posh. Together, he's <laughs> yeah, not but posh. He's not he's not posh. posh. <laughs> he buys his own furniture. And his parents are doctors. The the Jewish girl in me was like, wait, My what? My favorite description of a person, which is something that Harriet Welcher is looking over at the party. And she says that he's he is fun. He's fizzing away over there like a bottle of cheap Prosecco. And Roman goes, very cheap. <laughs> that, but that that is like, you know, I think you understand why she's doing it. I mean, this is a very sad woman. I mean, you know, I think I think if we want to, this would be maybe a good time to get back into the Shiv mom conversation because that to me is the there's two heartbreaking sort of poles of this episode. There's obviously like while the Shiv mom thing's going on, the Kendall dad thing is going on, and we should talk to both of those to, to about both of those and then and then maybe get to Shiv and Tom because that's the third heart. Like there's this sort of a trifecta of terribly heartbreaking things happening. Right. So we we do definitely learn like before the Shiv mom conversation comes the the Roman mom conversation where mom like talks about her fiance and says he is awful. I can obviously see that. And she comes up with that line about he um, bought all his own furniture, which is famously a line that Alan Clark, who was this very posh English MP used in his diaries about Michael Heseltine, who was this Araviste nouveau riche um, cabinet member. Love that. You know that. Wait, I, That is, Chef's kiss, amazing. Do we need to know anything else about that? I feel like I need to know a smidge. Oh, yeah. The other thing you need to know about that is that Michael Heseltine was in media. The way that Michael Heseltine made all of his money was a company called Haymarket Magazines. Heseltine makes millions and millions of pounds in in as, as a media mogul, basically. Goes into politics, becomes Secretary of Defense, um, you know, loses his job over a dumb scandal about, scandal about helicopters. But is then immortalized in Alan Clark's diaries. Alan Clark being the kind of person in England who looks down on the, on the royal family because they're a bit Araviste and Nouveau because they've <laughs> only been around for a couple of hundred years. And he literally lives in a castle that has been in his, in his family since the 13th century. Um, and he, and he describes us as the kind of guy who bought all of his own furniture. 
And oh my god. <laughs> well, then that joke is doubly fun. Way to go, Jesse Armstrong. Oh, and Jesse Armstrong, like, yeah, knows exactly what he's doing. And then she calls her again, her own fiance, who she's apparently, you know, in love with, quote, a grasping little scholarship boy. And he goes, careful, that's my stepdad, my future stepdad you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> that's my favorite. Which again is just like this this the the idea being that there are two ways of going to the good schools, right? One is that you, the, the right way, which is that you're born into the right family and you just get shepherded into the good schools. And one is the déclassé way, which is that you are bright and you pass a bunch of exams and you get let in on like academic merit. And the upper classes will always look down upon that. And, and that's exactly how she's referring to her husband, who then, you know, had a bit of bad luck with a salmon smoking business and he lost his place in Pimlico. Um, again, it's just, it's the classic way that like the upper classes would look at someone like the Middletons, right? Who like marry into the, the upper classes that so they have this kind of, they have their own business. They have to, they have to make their own money and they, and they buy a place in Pimlico, which is, you know, this, um, it's kind of a vaguely central neighborhood that is next to, the genuinely posh neighborhood, but it's not somewhere you would actually want to live if you could live in Eaton Square, which is the genuinely posh neighborhood. Well, and that the way he made his money was a little day classe. I mean, I think it's in, it, he has nurse a series of nursing homes, right? And I think Roman calls it the silver gulag, which I think is great. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, he's, he's not a posh, you know, Lord landed gentry person. He's some kind but of he wants an honor, and this is the other thing that he's he's very um, he's trying to climb the class ladder by m marrying into the right family, and also by uninviting his fiance's son from the wedding so that he can get his fiance's ex husband there because he reckons that the ex husband could put in a word with the PM and get him like into the house of lords well yeah i mean there's three there's a series of three conversations with the mother and the first one's actually with kendall right where that he arrives and she says you can't be at the wedding for four hours on the schedule and it's so heartbreaking it's the first interaction we see in tuscany and it's already setting this tone for this terrible time for kendall where he's like okay i'm your own son and you're gonna move mountains for like your ex-husband who you hate and you know it's all it's all just so clear to kendall that he is not powerful he has no leverage even with his own mother he is out of the family he is done he doesn't even have any hair yes thank you the hair is he's, is he's gone full the physical manifestation you know, of his loserness yes yeah <laughs> it's it's very he doesn't know where his kids are he's just out of it and, the, and then did you catch the, he's talking to Comfrey, like looking for something to do, I think. And it's like, are calls coming in any offers? And the only offer is a podcast that's digging into the Roy family history, like the Kennedys. Do you know anything about the caterer who drowned? And he realizes his only connection to his family is this death. I mean, like it's, it, it's, and I, when he says keep tabs on that, I really wonder if that's going to come back to haunt him in any way. But even if not, it's just like, he's done. Like no one's interested in him. Nothing, nothing's happening. And I think this last, and maybe we just jump ahead to the, 
we're, since we're on Kendall now, we can talk about this conversation because like, I think his last shred of dignity that he was clinging on to with these like, you know, last claws left was this idea that he's a good person and that at least he has the moral high ground above his father. And so he says that to Logan in their little uh, clatch and that backfires terribly because he, he Logan basically says, I defy this idea that you're some kind you're on the moral high ground because I clean up your shit when you actually literally kill people. I'm better than you. Sure. You're my son. I did my best. And whenever you fucked up, I cleaned up your shit. And I'm a bad person? Fuck off, kiddo. Good night. It breaks him. I was kind of with him on that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, totally. Like this, This whole idea of Kendall Roy occupying the moral high ground and trying to do it to his dad's face as though that's a great way to get his $2 billion. It's like, come on, Kendall. Like, just tactically, that makes no sense. That's what I thought. I was like, you are so dumb. Like, you're going to insult this man. You're trying to give, you're trying to make him give you $2 billion at the end of the day. Like, it's good that he said he acknowledged that he was a loser. And then everything he said after that was idiotic. Like, he couldn't, his ego wouldn't let him just end it there and be humble. He had to just say, I've lost. And then he could just end it. But instead, he then had to do this whole, like, I, I, you won because you're corrupt. So is the world. And he said, I hate to say this because I love you, but you're kind of evil. And then uh, what I thought was really with the phenomenal exchange was Logan comes back and says, okay, but I know things about the world and that's why I'm the success I am. And you're the loser sitting across the table from me that you are. And I know the ugly things and I'm a revolutionary because I embrace them. And I am just working within the system of the way the world already works. And I've cracked that and I figured it out. And I don't good doesn't even come onto the table here. Why are we even having a moral discussion? It's so far out of bounds of what I want to talk about. Life is a fight for a knife in the mud. Like they couldn't he, he morality, you're exactly right Rachel like has nothing to do with anything for any of these people, especially not for for Logan. Like life is a knife fight in the mud. Like I don't think he's thinking right or wrong ever. And I think the thing <laughs> that breaks that really breaks Kendall. Like, well, first of all, can we just talk about the like godfatherness of the like making Iverson eat the mozzarella? That was very wow. dark. It was, <laughs> it was. So I had to watch it twice to work out what was going on there. Um, the Logan actually brought his own food to the meal, and then Kendall was like, "Don't eat your food. Eat the food that I have had prepared for you." And then Logan was like, okay, I'm going to make Iverson eat the monster. Like a poison tester child. It's actually actually so sick. And when Kendall says, you think I would kill you, I will be broken when you die, which is this like actual, I think, true thing that came from Kendall's heart that he didn't yes. even mean to say. Like it was blurted out in a way, like actually like strangely my entire life decision and everything I've ever done is defined by you. So when you're gone, I don't know what I'll do. I'll have no center, even though I hate you. But this thing at the end that I think actually broke him was that thing he said about the how many, you know, how long do you think that kid gasped for air? And then he dared to accuse Kendall of being gay. You know, he's like, are you queer? Are you trying to fuck this kid? Like, everything is so cruel and so pointed. And that moment when he says, fuck you, kiddo, I think that's what really breaks Kendall. Because it's this idea of 
you think I'm a bad person? Like, how much worse does it make you that this person that you don't even admire or think is like evil is actually like somehow protecting you from the world and cleaning up messes you made that were worse? Like, I think there's something so sinister about that entire exchange. And I think that I think I think Kendall, like I just saw his back break like in two in that conversation. It was horrible to watch. And the next thing you know, he's drowning himself in a swimming pool. Is he dead? Or is the next episode Kendall dead? It's not, right? It's not. Jeremy Strong's too much of a star. They're never going to kill Gov Kendall. I kind of wanted it to be because I want something to happen. You know, I feel like it's this endless just things are happening, but there's no clear destination to land this season. There's no, I don't know where it's going, but I guess maybe it's a hospital scene or something. Is that too dark to say? I don't think so. Shana, the, the producer, was asking me, what do you think is going to happen next episode? And I said, I'm pretty sure that either there's going to be a wedding or there isn't. Oh. Oh, yeah. Did, oh, I couldn't the, figure the, out. And we is, haven't gotten to the did wedding Did we just yet. not yeah. see the wedding? Yeah. <laughs> no, we were yeah, the wedding it was hasn't the eve happened of yet. the wedding. Strange things are happening. Should we talk about Shiv and Tom a little bit? Because I feel like yes. if we don't, I will explode. Yes, we have to talk about it. I may not love you, but I do love you. What? Shiv's mom says, yeah, some people just aren't cut out to have kids. I should never have had kids. To which Shiv immediately runs back to Tom and says, let's have a baby right now. Just basically because she hates her mom so much. And then Tom's basically, oh, wow, okay. And then she hates Tom so much that she's like, wait, no, I didn't. I, I, I just meant we should freeze some embryo, embryos for the next decade. She can't work out who she wants to like get back at more. <laughs> she can't work out. Like, she, she doesn't know what she wants. That's two separate conversations, right? She comes home and she says, uh, let's have a baby. But she's so uninterested in actually having a baby that that's the whole conversation. The next thing she's talking about like how she's going to come out and become CEO and fight for it and get rid of, you know, Roman and, and like, she couldn't care less about having a baby. It's just one other thing she wants to do better than her mother. Yes, exactly. That's it. And then she says, let's talk dirty and says like, I, I don't love you to her husband and I'm better than you. And Rachel, what else did she say? It's like, it's unbelievable. If she says you're not good enough for me. <laughs> Maybe that's why you love me, but I don't, even though I don't love you. <laughs> this is why they're making out. And then later, the next morning, Tom's like, can we talk about last night? Like, what was that? And she's like, this is being manipulative. Like, you asked me to talk dirty to you. And then he says this thing that is so sad and pathetic where he goes, but should I listen to the things you say directly into my face when we were at our most intimate <laughs> yes, which calls back. And she says, well, what happens in Sex Vegas? And and then she goes on to be even more cruel because she's like, let's freeze our embryos. Tom, all he wants is a baby. He's been talking about this this entire season. He just wants to be a dad. And she is lording it over him. Then she's like, I didn't mean I would get pregnant. Like, we'd freeze. We'd use a surrogate. Who knows? Maybe down the road. We'll see what happens. And then they have this cringy horrible ending to their conversation where she's like and if you die maybe i'll have the kids anyway and he <laughs> says and if you die i'll have the kids anyway and she's like uh can i think about it meanwhile that is not even the most insulting can i think about it this episode because willa's off here <laughs> thinking about con's proposal the entire time thinking about it everyone is thinking about it Ooh. 
Will you make me the most happiest man slash most bulletproof candidate in the world? Okay. Um, no, I, no, I mean, baby, baby. People are looking, Willa. So romantic. And then she goes, maybe, so and then she's like, yes, I will let you get up while everyone thinks uh, we said yes, let me think. It's so awkward. I mean, Willa's got great stuff this entire episode. She walks into that villa and she's like, Italy, pizza, pasta, and pokes. <laughs> I mean, and I then noted, Con, speaking like, of fashion, did you see her? Did Willa you see her sneakers great. when they all have their bachelorette night? And Shiv's got these, like, she's like teetering on these very uncomfortable looking heels. And, and Willa's just got these great kicks on sneakers. Looks very comfortable and at ease, I thought. Willa is the, it, Willa is the person who is trying and actually on some level succeeding at remaining true to herself while still, you know, fighting against the, the, centripetal force of the Roy family, right? She doesn't want to be sucked in too much and she right. can't help being sucked in a certain amount. But she's like, no, I don't want to marry you. I, you know, I don't want to be part of this. I, I'm perfectly happy having my own place in New York and you coming and visiting me. And like, uh, she is fighting with all of her power, which isn't a lot, but is some, to not be Tom, to not embrace it, to not become part of it. Yeah, and I think also, like you said, the sneakers thing. Will is comfortable. She wears her her sort of um, nouveau riche like clothes well because she, to me, has the exact look of a woman who had a lot of fashion sense but was like buying stuff at Zara but making it work, and then had this glow up where she met Khan and this really rich man, and then was able to like actually go to Intermix and spend as much money as she wants. She already knew how she wanted to dress. She knows like how long floral dresses fit her body. I'm sure she's wearing a lot of like. Zimmerman and Gucci and these kind of like sort of maximalist florals that are very like high femme and kind of make her look, I don't know, uh, a little bit pastoral. She's she's wearing these things very lightly and very well. It's very fashionable downtown New York girl with a lot of money. And I think that that she's the reason she's able to wear it so lightly is, like you said, she's still lingering on the outside and she still thinks of herself as a bohemian, even though people are hate watching her play. And I think that she um, she she, you know, marrying Khan not only would be completely like giving up in certain ways on whatever dream she had of being an outsider, but also just like probably torturous. Just he's the worst. He's the who could who could spend their rest of their life with Khan. But she's thinking about it. I mean, she's thinking about it, though, because she's the, not an independent woman, right? She she capitulates to him. She's living. She agreed to live with him in the compound. And even the way she looks when she walks into that villa and she's talking about the Pope and then she goes into the room and she looks around and she goes, ooh, pretty. And it's so clear that she's like what she she knows exactly what she is getting. You know what I mean? She's getting a villa in Tuscany for the summer. And meanwhile, Connor doesn't even notice, right? That the family doesn't even notice how luxurious they're in, except for that one point when Logan's talking to Kendall and he's like, not everyone gets to live like this. He's like, Logan is aware of the luxury in the way that none of his children are. Did you catch that? That's the the sub the, the, the theme of the whole episode is like these were the most beautiful settings and the Roy's could give they don't care at all. And that was brought to ahead, I thought, at the scene the last scene by the pool with Iverson and Sophie are just like looking at their phones, hanging out by the pool. It's 
I mean, it's picture perfect. It is beautiful. I'd like to think if my children were there, they'd be like, oh my God, this is amazing. These kids could not give up a shit. They are like, yeah, this is boring. Our dad's falling asleep. Like we're out of here. You know, they don't I can't care. remember if it was in the New Yorker that or the or the New York magazine profile, but there was a quote from Jesse or, or maybe Sarah would about how like they were told to look bored in Tuscany because it would have been their their 10th time being there. Like it's it's not these, you know, I, I I don't remember who it was, but I read an article at the beginning of this and I was so shocked by that line because it was like, you know, rich people aren't dazzled by that. Like, if anything, it's like, ugh, we have to fly all the way to Italy again. What I actually really liked about this episode was the interstitial frames that Jesse got. There's so many little signifiers of wealth and that he pops into this episode that you just blink and you miss it. Like when they first get off this bellhop carrying all this designer luggage to the house and that, you know, you can see it's, it's like Louis Vuitton and Gucci luggage and he's just carting it and it's invisibly appearing in their rooms. You know, the way, even the way these women are walking through to the bachelor party and they're passing kind of the ragazzi on the street in Italy. And it's so clear that they are all these like women in designer clothes and kind of a, a throng moving through the streets of, of this, you know, small town in Tuscany and people are staring at them both mostly because they're um, a just giant pack of American women, but also because it's just this parade of wealth. And, and you have little things like this all along the way that I think are so brilliant because, you know, it's, there's like, it's a rich text about the just sheer opulence of the space. Talking of rich texts, Rachel, you said this was, you had your, your, Far too many good lines to quote, but what what was your favorite? The quote that I will take from this episode forever was, um, you're my fucking onion. <laughs> the, the you're yeah. my onion, you're my onion between Shiv and her mother. I think there's something about that that is so harsh and so absolutely devastating, like cutting both of them basically being like, you are the thing in life that makes me cry and makes me cry in this way that's like unavoidable and triggering. And I resent it. And it's very clear that it's like this moment of being like, I hate you and I hate you, too. And I also think in that conversation, the mother has another amazing quote that I will always remember, which is when she's saying that Shiv chose Logan over her. She's like, I moved to New York to be with you and you chose, you know, I gave him custody so you could keep your shares, but you really chose to live with him. You knew how to twist the knife even then. And she says, you were, you said, I'll take the carbonara and daddy, please. It's a great like, line. You're like, you, you spoiled fucking Brad, <laughs> you know, like you get everything you want. You always have you're my onion and you'll have the carbonara. So, and that whole conversation was just so like, mm, to me. I thought it was the most awful thing I'd ever seen. And like, to be clear, this isn't a, a conversation between equals. This is a mother telling her child that when she was a child, a child, she was manipulating an, a, her the adults in the room, which is not, it's not, that's not a thing. Like this is a mother just, completely failing as a mother and it gives you like a, a hint <laughs> of what all these children all these kids their their childhood was like this is like if there was a book that was like 100 things not to do if you're a mom like one of the things would be like don't tell your daughter she is worthless <laughs> because that is what she's doing she's telling her daughter she is worthless she's saying i should never have had you 
Like should have had dogs. That is, yeah. I think the worst thing you could really one of the worst things you could ever say to a child, no matter how old the child is. It's just utterly evil. So it kind of explains like why Shiv is the way she is. I would think that's that's what I thought. It's not just Logan who fucked her up. It's also yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's mom and dad. Another another yeah, great line from this episode that I absolutely love and want to praise Jesse Armstrong for is after um, Roman says mom's going to marry him anyway and, you know, doesn't want to live on Macaroni and Memorial. <laughs> Shiv goes, so Ellen, poor old Eleanor Rigby wants to eat dick and drink champagne for the rest of her life, which poor old Eleanor Rigby wants to eat dick is just mwah. Like, thank you for putting it's that in good. the thing. It's good. The whole, I mean, this episode, like I said, it's a banger. I have to say, I, I was fond of Roman's line when when um, Jerry was complaining about the SEC, like, you know, being all over, like, Matson potentially um, revealing non-public information. And Roman goes, oh, my goodness, a gummy love bite from the fucking toddlers. Yes. Which is which is a very like Elon Musk attitude to the SEC right there. So good. Um Shiv calling her mother scary poppins. Perfect. Oh, um, I love that. Yes. Yeah. You know, the the moment when um Roman tells Jerry when she's like, please stop sending me these pictures, and he goes, Don't open Pandora's box, there's just more dicks in there. Just more dicks. <laughs> I laughed that out loud at so that one. Good. Yes. It's so self-aware. <laughs> it's so self-aware. And then, self -aware. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously the skunk, the porcupine, and the concubine. I mean, there were so many good, and oh, I forgot about the date ladder conversation they have with Greg. <laughs> Maybe I wonder if when she gets to know the quote-unquote real me, uh, will she stick around? Well, I guess either way, if it doesn't work out, she's a great date ladder. Excuse me? As, as in... Well, you know, people will see her with you, and no offense, but they'll say, what the fuck's going on there? Why is he with her? Yes, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm aware of what you're saying. Okay. It still could work for you. Date ladder. Play the date ladder game. When Greg is, like, trying to wonder whether this comfy thing is going to last, and Tom goes... Does Comfrey not slake your lust for wisdom, Greg? It's a shame Sontag's not still around. He could take her to the drive-thru. Oh, my God. I thought, because um, sometimes I'm like, why Why is Tom with Shiv? But watching them interact with Greg, I was like, oh, that's how they have a good time, by making fun of Greg. Like, that is They when kick their dog people, named yeah. Greg. <laughs> what a delight. And I was like, oh, I, I see the chemistry. We keep saying kick your dog, which I think is comes out of that mother daughter conversation, which was is probably the theme of this entire episode, which is that the mother describes Logan as, you know, he kicks dogs. He kicks anything he loves just to see if it comes back. And in certain ways, he has passed that quality on to all of his kids. They are all kicking everything they love, you know, or they are so used to being kicked that like Kendall, they're totally broken. I mean, Kendall's a broken dog. You know, he has nothing left. He's basically just like a sad dog cowering in the corner. Roman is like a little weasel because he sort of is seeking out the kicking. He wants the attention that would come from the kicking. Shiv is all, but Shiv is now taking it and internalized that behavior and she's moved it on to Tom. So it's all very like, you know, Freudian what's happening in this episode for sure. Everything is like, here's how your parents fucked you up. Here's how it's manifested in the lower generation. And here's how they're manifesting it on other people. It's like this tiered trauma 
cake. It's a tiramisu of fucked upness <laughs> happening in Tuscany. Keep it Italian. <laughs> I, I I feel like that is the um, the perfect place to to wrap this one. The tiramisu of fucked upness happening in Tuscany. <laughs> God, this episode was really good. This was the best it's, episode it was, of the season back on, by far. It's back. I I feel like it had a little bit of a, like a. I I really loved certain episodes. I actually liked Kendall's birthday party. I know there were mixed feelings about it, but I think that that this episode has gone to the heights where Succession at its very best. I think you know Succession is one of those great show, shows that does events very well. Everything that happens at a big party, the wedding episode of the for the finale of the last season, this. Like, I think when they do these bottle episodes where they all have to travel and be in one place, they really, they really kill it. Which means we should be in for a treat for the finale, right? Because that is probably going to be a wedding of some description. Unless, you know, Kendall winds up is screwing it dead? all up. Is he dead? He's not dead. He's, He's not, not dead. We'll find out on Sunday bum, bum, at 9 p.m. Bum. We'll all be watching. <laughs>